0: And I want to consider with you this morning from the scriptures how to combat one of the great tactics of the devil. One of the chief recourses of the adversary of all truth. And that tactic is fear. I want to consider the relationship of fear a real, living, vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to ask the question and try to give it a biblical answer. How does one having faith in Christ react to things in life that invoke fear? Around the world, we see that fear is prevailing in godless societies. It's prevailing in this godless society. And far too often fear prevails amongst the people of God to our shame. If you're studying, if you are struggling to put fear in its rightful place, I want to direct you to Psalm 46 this morning, but also on your own, I encourage you to study the minor prophet Habakkuk. I want to read you the beginning verses and the ending verses of Habakkuk. The beginning verses sound like they could have been written last night. And the begin the ending verses are Lord willing where we would all end up put in the same position as he. The beginning of Habakkuk starts like this, the prophet saying O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Doesn't that sound like it could have been written last night? And then the ending verses of Habakkuk, the hymn of faith, you will recognize as I begin to read them. And throughout this ongoing conversation between the prophet and the Lord, this is a conversation and a series of statements. Worthy of our study, the Lord gets Habakkuk, this fearful prophet who is crying out to him in the first few verses to this place by the end of this short prophetical book. And he says at the end, though, the fig tree may not blossom. You remember these verses now, though, the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, even though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Even though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Even that last part that I read is part of inspired scripture. The fearful prophet in the beginning ends by submitting to the chief song leader a hymn of faith to be sung in the congregation. To the chief musician with stringed instruments. It is my hope and I trust that the Lord will so work in us this morning as we consider Psalm 46. If there is such fear in us, if there is such fear in any one of us, that by the end of our look at Psalm 46, the Holy Spirit of God coming and being our instructor and teacher and making application of these truths to our heart, that we would be able to submit a hymn of faith to whomever would lead us in singing it, written by ourselves with a a great desire. To praise the Lord for his upholding and strengthening presence in the midst of great difficulty. What we read when we read the prophet Habakkuk. What we see played out before our eyes. Is the liberation from superficial circumstantial happiness. To an abiding joy in the face of difficulty. That should be the goal of every Christian. Far too often, our joy in Christ rises and falls based upon current circumstance. What's going on in the world dictates how joyful we are in Christ far too often. Fear is a powerful tactic and it has long been used to promote godless agendas go back and read the beginning of the scripture go back and read about men like joshua and caleb who had a very unique courage and boldness before the lord but all of the other men who had before times proven to be men of valor when they saw giants in the land what did they do They shrunk back from the task before them and suffered horrendous consequences for it, even though even though Joshua and Caleb had unique courage over and over. And you might remember, we studied through the book of Joshua a couple of years ago, over and over throughout that. The Lord is reaffirming to him. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do you remember the reason attached to each one of those encouragements not to fear I am with you, for I am with you, for I am with you. Every place in the scriptures that we are encouraged not to fear, very close in proximity to that encouragement, we will find some reminder of the Lord's presence with us. And we need so often to be reminded that God tells his people as we live in this world that we need not live in fear. There are any number of things today that entice Christians to fear. Sickness, death, change, persecution, and that list could get very long. All of these are crippling fears. But here's the interesting thing. Every one of these things that we are so prone to fear in the scriptures are presented in a positive, useful light. Let me prove that to you. Do you remember Lazarus? The news came to Jesus, "Lord, he whom you loves, he whom you love is sick." And what was Jesus's reply? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. What about death? Death is indeed the last enemy, but it is an enemy that Christ has triumphed over, and the Scriptures present death as the gate through which believers enter eternal glory. What about change and persecution? Well, the Scripture presents Things such as that as refining fires that casts us in faith to the feet of Christ and total dependence upon him. So do you see how those very things that the world would present to you to be your greatest cause of fear? Very often, I hesitate to say always, but I want to very often, if not always are the very things that the Lord has revealed to us in Scripture to be the most useful to us in this life. Showing us our weakness, showing our total dependence upon Him. And the thinking that we deserve or should expect to be free, to live lives free of disease or sickness or trouble of any kind, is a belief that robs and distorts one of the greatest comforting truths in Scripture. The truth is this that it is in these very things that God shows himself to be strong on our behalf. It is in these very things that we have the experience of his goodness and his sustaining grace. He becomes most tender and most real to our senses when we walk through these valleys. And don't you know from your own experience, he makes himself known in times of trouble with distinct clarity. In times of ease, we suppose that God is good. But in times of trouble, we know he is good. Is it any wonder why the counterintuitive declaration of James is so confounding to many. James begins by saying, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials he doesn't leave it there. Thank God he doesn't leave it there just with that hanging out in the open. But he attaches to that this statement or this one word, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing because of what you know. And to paraphrase the rest of that verse, James is basically saying what you know is God is using these very trials, difficulties, whatever it may be in your life for good to mature you in the faith, to further sanctify you, to grow you up in the faith, to make you more of what he wants you to be, to help distance you from all of these things that are hindrances. To live under the influence of fear of any kind is crippling and miserable. And this type of fear does not come from God. God has not given you a spirit of fear. To the contrary, he has given you a spirit of soundness. He has given you a spirit of stability, of a sound mind. Before we get into Psalm 46, let me say just a couple of more things. And I think each one of these statements that I'm going to make, if pressed, I could find chapter and verse to support them. Allowing worldly fear, those things that are presented to you by the world to invoke you to fear, to allow those things to dictate your life choices is always wrong. The Christian's life is to be dictated by one chief fear. This fear overrides all other fears, and it is the fear of God. How do you put to death fear in your life? Have a greater fear. Put all of these lesser fears in their place underneath, subjected to the fear of God. Allowing fear to keep you from obedience to clear commands is always wrong. It is wrong based upon, let me say it this way, it is wrong because it is a practical denial of belief and trust in the sovereignty of God. And I realize the difficulty. To say we believe in the sovereignty of God and then to live like we know it's true, two totally different things. The quote that I'm about to read to you is attributed to Spurgeon. I couldn't find exactly where this was cited or quoted, but I'm going to trust the source. And the quotation is, Spurgeon says, the scriptures say, fear not. Because fear is injurious to yourself. Nothing so weakens you as fear. Nothing can make you so unhappy as to be distrusting of the Lord. Fear weakens the believer's influence and causes great mischief to those around you. Converts are not brought to Christ through unbelieving, fearful Christians. It is faith. That is appealing and wins souls. Perhaps that's found in his book, The Soul Winner. I'm not sure if it is or not. Could also be, sounds like it would fit in his in his lectures to his students. All of this boils down to this fear is a real temptation and must be tempered by the truth of God. Lord willing, that's what Psalm forty six will do for us this morning. So if you found your place there, I want to read these 11 verses. We're going to work our way through them. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and are troubled, Though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord God of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. Who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. And if verses 1 and 2 are not the most familiar of this psalm. Then surely the tent will be. Be still. And know. That I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And it's worth mentioning here that this word that is used three times in this psalm. Selah or Selah. Is most likely a musical term. Which means to pause. Reflect upon the truth just expressed and really let it sink down into your heart and into your mind. So, with that, I want you to look with me at verse 1, which sets the stage for the rest of the psalm. Verse 1 is the foundation for which the rest of the psalm rests. Without verse 1, the rest of the psalm would make no sense. Without verse 1, there is no logical move into verse 2, beginning with the word, therefore. And so the first point that I want to make to you here out of verse 1 is to consider with me this comforting truth. We don't know the specific context of Psalm 46, why it was written. It would be vain for me to try to place it in some season of David's life or any other. But Psalm 1 makes these declarations. God is our refuge, strength, and very present help in trouble. It's no wonder that The first Lord's Day following September 11th, 2001, Psalm 46 was the most preached portion of scripture. And it's not just those national tragedies that drive us to Psalm 46. It's the much smaller things that happen in our lives individually that drive us here. I don't know how well you know Psalm 46, if you know it by heart, every word, if you've spent a lot of time in Psalm 46 or if Psalm 46 is practically a stranger to you. I pray and hope by the time that we're done that you would see the beauty that's here and that would be a real help to you. I want to look at these three words that the psalm uses to describe. God for us. And remember, this is in the face of whatever the trouble is in verse one. Just just suffice it to know that whatever the trouble was, it was real. It was experienced. It was felt. And it inspired the writing of this song. And perhaps the Lord doesn't tell us its specific context, so it will be immediately applicable to all of us all the time. Else we'd be tempted to place it only in the life of David or only in the life of whomever may have wrote it. By using the word refuge, the scripture tells us that God, the God of heaven, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who created all things, the God who is responsible for your existence and the God who redeemed you by the blood of Christ is your refuge. What does that word mean? It means a place of safety, it means a place of protection, a shelter from the storm. I remember, I believe it was April 2nd, those of you who resided in Paris in 1982, wasn't that the date, April 2nd? When the tornado came through and destroyed the northeast part of town. I was just nine years old on a school bus on my way home. And all we knew was that it was raining very hard. The wind was blowing. We were about 10 miles northwest of town. And we came to a house that had a storm shelter. And we were letting someone off. And the people that lived in the house, the parents, came running out to the bus and said, get everybody down into the storm shelter because there is a tornado nearby. Well, with great fear. We all made our way down into that shelter and found refuge from the storm. That's what this word is. It's not the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of difficulty. It's not the absence of anything that would entice you to fear. There were great enticements to fear on that day. But in the midst of all of that great enticement to fear, there was a refuge, a safe haven to which we could run. That is what God is for a believer. Now, we're going to move in just a moment. This is more than just head knowledge. This is not something for you just to believe. This is something for you to implement. And we're going to see that. But before we get there, I want to look at the other two words. Not only is God a safe haven and a place of safety, but he is our Strength In this day of trouble, in this day of being tempted to fear, God is a place of strength. That word is power and ability. And just think of it in this way. What you will find in God as you make your way into his shelter is the ability or the power to live above fear. I didn't say you would find that in yourself because you will not. I didn't say just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever that phrase means. I didn't say do that. What I said is you will find in God the strength and ability and the power to overcome the fear that has so taken you and engulfed you. When we are weak, he is strong. And again, this is something more than just to believe in your head. Something altogether different to implement it. But the third word, he is our very present help and translations abound on this word. I'm going to give you a few words that I I found to be helpful this week. He is an exceeding help, a superlative help, an immediate help, a sufficient help. And perhaps the words of the New King James just say it best. He is a very present help. And notice the word our in this verse. God is our. This applies specifically to the people of God. Unbelievers cannot claim these things in God. These are peculiar to the people of God. A very present. What does that mean? You do not have to look for to find him when you're in trouble. You do not have to go on a search for him to the ends of the earth. He's very present. Aren't you thankful for the attribute of God presented in scripture that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. So that being the first point, I want to make the second point out of the first word of the second verse. The word therefore. And I want to call this word. The hitch pin of faith. If the truths of verse one are not hitched and perhaps I'm, I'm revealing my northeast Texas upbringing here. But if the truths of verse one are not hitched to your life in real experience, they will profit you nothing. Verse one is more than just high and holy thought. If that bus driver had not directed us to get off of the bus and into the storm shelter, it would have profited us nothing. It took real steps in real life experience to get into that safe place. So this word is the hitch pin of faith that connects all that God is, all that he has made himself known to be to his people that find themselves in any trouble, particularly his people who find themselves being fearful. I can say that because of the next four words. Therefore, we will not fear. There can be no disconnect. Between verse one and verse two, the truth of verse one is not affirmed in the mind only. It's affirmed through the choices, the decisions, the actions of daily life, which reflect a determination to walk by faith, trusting God all the way, especially through great difficulty. To say that another word in another way, the orthodoxy of verse one and orthodoxy means right thinking. Sound doctrine, the orthodoxy of verse one naturally, naturally leads the psalmist to the orthopraxy or the right living of the second verse. And you see that attached all the way through scripture, usually denoted by this word. Therefore, we study that particularly in Paul's epistles. Usually you can break those epistles in half. The first few chapters, doctrine. The last few chapters, therefore, live based upon what you now know. Walk in the light of what you now know. Therefore, we will not fear. The connection has to be made. It should really affect the way you live, that you know God is your refuge and strength and your very present help in trouble, that truth should put any kind of fear in its rightful place because God is these things to the full. Notice the words, even though, in verse 2. Even though the earth be removed. Though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. In verse 2, the earth and the mountains are representative of the most stable things known. The most immovable objects. And notice that the psalmist says, based upon what God has made known about himself to me in a time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear even if things are the worst that can be imagined. You realize there are far worse things that we could wake up to tomorrow than we have known to present. Far worse. What will we do? Even though the earth be removed. Most see this here as a as a. A way of saying even though the earth be spun off its axis or even though the seasons cease. Of course, we know the scriptures tell us that as long as Christ is seated in heaven, these things are not going to happen. But just suppose, and that's what the psalmist is doing, supposing the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, its waters roar and be troubled, the mountains shake with its swelling. Then we get the first use of that word, which points us back to these great truths and says, just sit on these for a while. Marinate on these truths for a while. Do you really believe them before you move on to what is left in Psalm 46? Are you really believing verse one and are you willing to appropriate it by faith? That's the real question. Not if you believe verse one. The real question is, will it affect your everyday life at all? Will it release you from that which tempts you to go through life crippled and maimed in fear? Even though these great things may come upon you, the real test here is the test of faith. How will you handle it? Then we get into verse 4. And the rest of this psalm, down to verse 10. Really is a contrast. And this is the third point. The contrast of the shaken earth. Or the movable earth. Or the mountains that are cast into the sea. Suffice it just to say. The contrast of the earth. And the city of God. The city of God in verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. The city of God particularly in the Old Testament. Old covenant thought was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city of God applying that thought to New Covenant, New Testament thinking is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that because of what verse five and six says about the Lord's presence. But let's not miss the first half of verse four that speaks of the great benefit that comes to this city of God. By, by the way, the city of God is comprised Of those who believe verse 1. And then act upon that belief in verse 2. There is a river. Questions abound. What's the river? And answers are just as plenteous. All types of conjecture. You can read through scripture and see what place a river has in the city of God. You can read places like Ezekiel 47. You can go back to the Garden of Eden. You can go to the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. By way of understanding what the river is, we have to ask the question, what makes the city of God extremely glad? Some have said the Scriptures, and that would be right. The city of God, dependent upon the truth that is revealed in the Scripture. The church, completely submissive to what the Word says. But I think we can put an even finer point on it and say that this river that makes glad the city of God is everything the Scriptures have made known about who Christ is. And how God practically works in the members of the city of God through faith in Christ. To prove himself to be the place of refuge, the source of strength, and the very present help in trouble. And so following the pattern that we saw in the prophet Habakkuk. It doesn't take long for the writer of the psalm, after contemplating great trouble, to see the source of great gladness. He refers to this city of God more distinctly, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. William Plummer commenting on this verse says, The streams of spiritual blessings flowing from God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God make glad the city of God continually. There is a continual flow. That's the representation of a river. It's continually flowing, continually bringing newness of life, continually bringing what is life giving and sustaining to the city of God. God is in the very midst and she shall not be moved. The word moved here is shaken. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. I don't suppose it would always prove to be true, but an invading army in history most often made its advance just at the break of dawn, just at first light for the element of surprise But also to operate in just enough light to accomplish their task. And so the scriptures here are very specific. God is in the midst of her. When is he going to help? When is he going to show himself to be the very present help in trouble? Just when you need it. Just at the right time. Just when the enemy is advancing upon you. Making themselves known. That is when the Lord is your very present help in trouble. So put those temptations to fear. You know what they are specifically for you. Put those temptations to rest, knowing that God is with you. Fear not, for I am with you and believe really and truly that nothing will befall you that he doesn't allow and put everything in its rightful place. You and I can't control things anyway. We have zero control over the effects of the events of this world. What we do is live in the light of scriptures, trying to make wise choices, trying to make choices that are informed by the wisdom of God that line up with what his clearly revealed will is. But yet that's where so many of us, myself included, that's where we struggle is control (laughs) I want to be in control. Verse 6 tells us the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. What is a raging nation? A raging nation is one or many that are making rabid declarations that totally contradict the clear truth of the living god the nations raged the kingdoms were moved and notice the very present help in trouble arrives he uttered his voice and the earth melted When God speaks, the nations listen. The earth melts. And then this refrain is repeated twice, verse 7 and then again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And then that word again that tells us to think on these things. The Lord of hosts, you realize that the Lord who is... Residing in heaven, Psalm 115, verse 3 tells us he's in heaven doing whatever he pleases. Nothing hinders him. He has a host in heaven at his ready and willing command. And it is this Lord who is with us. Who is the us there again? People of God. Who are to be found in Christ faith in Christ, either as an old covenant person looking forward to the coming and work of Christ or now we living under the new covenant we are by faith looking back at the finished work of Christ he is with us and he is our refuge and then the call in verse 8 come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, and he burns the chariots in fire. All of that can be summarized into saying, the Lord sees the supposed strength of the world for exactly what it is. Under his thumb. Sometimes he so chooses to use it for his own purposes. For his own glory. But when the time comes for him to put an end to it. To remove it out of his way and ours. He's perfectly able. And that brings us down to the end here in verse 10. Be still. And know that I am God. I like William Plummer's. Comment on these two words, be still. He says, I quote, strong restraint upon your passions is necessary, end quote. That's what it means to be still. Place a strong restraint on your own passions, cause them to cease. And the question, how do I do that? Well, it's meditating and believing the truth of verse 1 and then living in light of those truths. Be still and know that I am God. What a simple yet profound statement there in verse 10. What a simple remedy and antidote to any temptation to fear that you and I will ever know. In the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the mountains sinking into the sea, in the midst of the earth being removed, in the midst of roaring troubled waters and mountains that are shaking with swelling, amidst everything that we have ever known. If it were to go awry all at one time, the proper and right thing for the people of God to do is be still and know he's God. This world is not spiraling out of his control it's spiraling as he sees fit and he's using that spiral placing his church right in the midst of it he's using that to further sanctify us and to prepare us for glory you see all the troubles of this life are summed up in the scripture by by the phrase A small weight. (laughs) This is a small weight of affliction. This is a momentary affliction that will very soon be replaced with an eternal weight of glory. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the repetition of verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salem. So what is the antidote to fear? Several ways we could say it, but. The antidote to fear is stillness before God Believing what he has said about himself. And then by faith. Walking in that light. That's how you dispel fear. Lord, I know. That you're in control. Regardless of what is happening or what will happen. I know that you are this place of safety for me and by faith I can run to you and find strength to press on. God help us to do just that that it may truly and rightly be said of those who have faith in Christ therefore we Will not fear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these words and thankful for the truth of verse 1. Oh God, where would we be without them? Where would we be without you having made known to us these great truths about yourself and your relation to us? You are our place of safety, you are our shelter from. Not only the storms of this life, but from the storm of life. You are our strength. And we're thankful that you are very present. You are not far removed. Lord, we realize what a crippling thing fear can be in the life of a believer, going so far as to cause us to transgress clear commands. Help us, forgive us, help us to walk in faith. Lord, we pray that in all things you would be well pleased. And Lord, if there be those in the room that have not yet come to believe in all that you say you are, specifically what you've said concerning your son, the Lord Jesus. That though sinless, perfect, and spotless, he gave himself willingly to satisfy your just demands. Father, we thank you for these moments we've been able to worship you, to sing, to pray, and be instructed from your word. We ask that you add your blessing to it. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.